So why did I choose to give a, a topic, uh, a talk on this topic? Is that for many people, public speaking is a real struggle, and it really was for me for many, many years. So when I was at university, I stood for a position on student government. I stood for the position of treasurer of the student union. And I thought the position of treasurer would involve signing checks and keeping accounts in Excel spreadsheets, just like a good economic student, which is what I was. But the very first meeting that we had, there was a debate on tuition fees, whether they're good or whether we should oppose them. And the president of the students' union, she wanted to vote for the motion. She was really against tuition fees. So she would normally chair, but because she was speaking on the motion, she couldn't. So it would have fallen to the vice president. But he was on the other extreme. He was really in favour of tuition fees. And so it then fell to me as third in command to chair the meeting. And I was a complete disaster. I was actually so bad that the next meeting, the students proposed a motion to create a new position of general meeting chairperson <laughs> so that if ever in the future it was the case that the president was not able to chair, it would fall to this new chair so that they wouldn't be subjected to the incompetence that I had displayed in the first meeting. Now, that, meet that motion wasn't passed, um, but still there was a way out for me because there was nothing in the constitution to show, to argue that the chair had to be decided by rank. So maybe if it would have fallen for me, I could have given it to the person who was fourth in command and he could have just as easily um, given the, uh, as chaired the meeting. But that would just be an easy get out, right? That would have been comfortable in, in the short term. That would have avoided embarrassment. But I realised that public speaking is something that would probably be useful in the future, number one in my career, but also number two in terms of general life. And I thought I couldn't run away from this, so let me try to work on it. And so in future meetings, I did take up the chair position. And the second and third time was almost as difficult as the first. But then slowly and slowly, by the end of the year, I became semi-competent. And then when I left to do my PhD at MIT, knowing that I avoid by the fact that I had made some improvement, but knowing that I still had a lot of improvement to go, I thought, well, let me join the Toastmasters Public Speaking Club. And when I joined that, most of the other people at this club were non-native English speakers. And they said, well, why are you joining this club? Because speaking is something that you either have or if you don't have, if you're a native English speaker, you're at your level already. But I thought, no, this is something I could work on. And then in the very first um, meeting, Sometimes there's prepared speeches, but if you're not doing prepared speech, they put you on the spot and they tell you to speak on the topic. And they asked me to speak on the topic, what is the difference between a lady and a woman? So that was a really difficult question. It wasn't something I could suddenly come up with, and I just gave a really bad answer. And I knew that if I kept coming back, there would be times I would be put on the spot but that was just going to be part of my development, was to learn in the sandbox environment, where sometimes it would fail, but hopefully I would improve. And then fast forward to four years later, um, I was then an assistant professor of finance at Wharton in Philadelphia. I was at a conference in North Carolina and gave a talk on my research. And at the end of the talk, uh, a senior professor called John, he said, Alex, that was a great talk. You must have worked really hard at it. And I was crestfallen. I wish he had said, Alex, that was a great talk. You must be an effortless speaker. You must be a natural. You probably didn't need to prepare. But he would have been completely wrong. 
I was not a natural. The only way that I was able to give a semi-competent talk was through putting a lot of effort into it and working hard. So the first point that I want to make is public speakers are made, not born. But we often think about the idea of talent, you are natural at something, and if you are, don't bother working at it. And if you're not a natural, there's no point in working at it, right? Maybe your talent is somewhere else, and therefore just focus on that. And maybe you might think, well, am I preaching to the converted by saying this? Because the fact that you've all chosen to come here on a cold Wednesday evening suggests that you think there's the potential for learning. But I just wanted to go through this just to say, well, even for me, who now has a job which involves a lot of speaking, this was something that I was really uncomfortable with for a long, long time. But I'll add a couple of caveats to this before I go on. Number one is that the progress that we make when we learn speaking is very abrupt. Now, for many other things, the progress is gradual. Let's say you're lifting weights. You don't go from lifting 20 kilos to 60 kilos. You go 20, 25, 30, 35, and so on. But with public speaking, it might be that you put many months in with no discernible progress, and then you suddenly make a step change. So to the extent to which we practice this afterwards, and you don't see any immediate results, please uh, sort of keep at it, because the way that progress matter works is not in a straight line. It's something which is abrupt. The second thing is that you might have sort of thought of what I just said to begin with about the idea that talent doesn't matter. You might think, well, I've heard that. I've heard Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. That shows if I just put 10,000 hours of work into this, I will become better. But actually, and I'm going to come back to this as my, my sixth lecture, this research is, is strongly misrepresented. So the research that he cites, there's nothing about 10,000 hours. And that's empowering because many of us don't have 10,000 hours to invest in it. And instead, what the research shows by Anders Ericsson was that what really matters is deliberate practice, not just putting in time, but following particular guidelines. And so the goal of this talk is to give deliberate tips on how we can work at public speaking. And what he says is that when we do practices, they need to be intentional. We often think about rehearsing, speaking, or rehearsing a music piece, as being just a run-through. But practice is different from a run-through. It might be that you're practicing a speech, and you're saying, well, this time, I'm going to work on my body language. Or maybe I'm going to practice a speech, and I'm going to intentionally work on vocal variety. And so that's very different from a run-through, where you just go through the motions. Instead, every time you sit down and you try to practice it, what is the goal of, of that practice? And then when you do that, then it may well be that you want to record yourself and look at the extent to which you incorporated this and you took this into account. And many people don't like this. Out of the, some, some of the most unpleasant things to do is to watch yourself speaking. But the idea of recording yourself and then evaluating yourself on the goal of the practice, this is what Anders Ericsson's research made the difference between just a run-through and something which is going to see advances. And it's not just watching yourself. Another thing that you could do is intentionally study a talk and then from somebody that you admire and then look at what she is really good at when she gives her speeches and then go and try and incorporate that into your own talk. So pick your favourite speaker and then watch them and look at intentionally what do they do well. 
And indeed, in today's talk, what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw from two talks of my own. One of them is my TED talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World. And the other is the TEDx talk, The Social Responsibility of Business. Not because these are the best talks that have ever been given, not at all. It's because when I worked on those talks, I had the privilege of working with a public speaking coach, a guy called Simon Bucknell, who's the UK and Ireland's public speaking champion for a couple of years. And he intentionally made me incorporate certain points into those talks. And that's the only reason that I'm going to be referring to them here. Okay, so now what I want to do is to go through the specific intentional points that really helped me with public speaking. And when I go through these, a lot of them to you might seem obvious, but they're only obvious after the fact. So in addition to giving a lot of talks myself, in my finance class at LBS, I have a lot of public speaking assignments for my students. They have to present a trade idea or a case study. And having watched sort of hundreds and hundreds of them, and after everybody presents, I always provide individualized feedback on their speaking. That's what's led me to choose these particular items to share with you today, because those are the ones on which I see there to be the greatest potential for improvement. Now, before I do that, I think we need to have in mind what is so different about public speaking. Because I think before we think about what to work on, we need to realize that public speaking is a unique medium of communication. So there are many ways in which you can get a message across. Right? We could engage in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. We could send an email. We could make a blog post. Or we can write an article. So at Gresham College, we not only have the lectures, we also have the transcripts afterwards. Why do you bother to come here when you could have looked at the transcript afterwards? There must be something unique about public speaking as a medium, and we need to take that into account when we give the talk. And so what are the things which, which are unique? Now, I think one of them is that you need to command the audience's attention. Right? So with an article or an email, if the reader misses a key point, she can just go back and read that again. Whereas here, if you miss a key point, right, I've only had one chance to go through it. So one of the key goals is to make sure that you get the key points. I can't expect you to take in 100% of everything that I say, but my goal here is to make sure that you get the most important points. Now, some people will say, ah, oh, well, when you're giving a public speech, it's just like having a conversation. And I know why people say that. They're trying to ease your nerves. But I think a statement like that is unhelpful because public speaking is very different from a conversation. In a conversation, if you say something and the other person doesn't get it, he or she can say, ah, oh, can you repeat that point again? Or ask a question. Here, you can't until the Q&A at the end, so I need to make sure that the key points come across, across clearly. Okay, so the other uh, unique point about public speaking is the importance of signposting. So what I mean by this is in an email, you have the ability to use headlines and bold and italics and underlining. You don't have that to the same degree with speeches. So you might have to use other techniques, such as pauses or vocal variety, and I'm going to go through this later, to make sure that the key points go through. Again, you can't expect people to get 100% of what you say, but try to highlight the key points. 
And while the first two things have talked about the challenges, the problems, the difficulties with public speaking, which is why so many people find this a struggle, there are unique opportunities. There are things that you can do which you might not be able to do in the other mediums of communication, right? which is to use body language. right? You can't walk around the room in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. That would be a bit weird. Uh, and you can do things like vocal variety. Again, that would be overly dramatic in a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So what we're going to look at is the challenges and the opportunities. So let me first start with signposting. So why do I think this is important? So audiences, they always like to take notes of any form of communication, be this reading or be this listening to a talk, they'll take notes. So some of you might be taking actual notes on your iPhone or pen and paper, but if not, you might be taking mental notes. Hopefully, when you leave here today, you don't think, okay, that was an interesting talk. You might think, I've learned these three points from it. And so if that's indeed the case, what you would like to do is to signpost the main points that you're about to give before you give them. Why? Because the audience then sees where you're going, and so they then slot in the later points that you're about to give underneath those headings. So let me give you a concrete example. So as I say, I try and get my students to do a stock pitch. Now, sometimes you have students who give a stock pitch saying, this company's good for all of these reasons. And then at the end, the audience thinks, Oh, yeah, that person was really positive about the stock. But then they don't remember why you were positive. And if they then need to explain to the boss why to invest in the company, they've forgotten the reason. You've given a slew of positives, but you've not structured them. Instead, a good structure might be this. There are three reasons you should invest in the stock. Growth prospects, management quality, and market undervaluation. Let's start with growth prospects. And you give all of that reasons. And then you stop. Then you might pause. Then you might shift your stance to the other side of the room. And then you'd say, the second reason is management quality. You give those reasons why you think the management team is good. Then you stop. You pause. You might shift your stance. And then you give the third reason. You explain why the market is undervaluing it. And so why do I think such a structure is, is, is helpful? It's because when you are then giving all the good reasons about why the stock is good, the audience knows, let's say they're taking physical notes, what heading to put your points into. Is it growth prospects or management quality or market undervaluation? They know where you're going. So you're not just giving a slew of positives, you're giving three specific points and elaborating them on, the, on those points. And I also mentioned the, the idea that the point about uh, pausing between different points. And I think that's important because some speeches, they can be very enthusiastic. And I know a lot of what people say is you want to show enthusiasm and, and be confident. But sometimes a speech could be, just be a long stream of consciousness where it's not clear where one point stops and the next point starts. And the idea of pausing and maybe shifting your stance makes that clear. So again, if the audience is taking mental notes, they think, OK, yes, she's now finished talking about the management quality. She's now moved to market undervaluation. And therefore, either in my paper or in my head, I can now shift gears and I can now make sure that everything that um, she's now saying is going to be within this category of um, market undervaluation.
Okay, so just repeat the point here. Preview the points that you're going to say. And then that will help people know where you're going so that they can fill in what you're about to say under those specific categories. Okay, so the next point I'm going to talk about is highlighting key points. So as I said at the start of this talk, you can't expect the audience to get everything, but the goal should be to make sure that everybody gets the most important point. Let me repeat that. You can't expect uh, people to get 100% of what you say, but you might want 100% of the audience to get the key points. How can you ensure that? Well, one is what I just did. You could just repeat the same sentence twice, right? That might seem sort of obvious, but it's something that many people don't do. Maybe people were just on their phone at the time or they dozed off, say the same point twice. Or it could be that you explicitly highlight it. You might say, this is my main point. Or sometimes I've heard someone say, if there is one thing you take away from the talk, it is this. And you might think, well, that seems like really blatant to say something like that. But it's not that shows empathy with the audience. That shows I recognize that as an audience member, maybe it's first thing in the morning and uh, you're, you've got other things on your mind. And that just makes sure that the audience gets what the critical points are. What about other things which are perhaps a bit less blatant because you might not want to do this every time, right? If you keep saying, this is my main point every five minutes in, then it might get a bit tiresome. So another way to do this would be to repeat the same the sentence, the point twice, but not repeating the same sentence twice and verbatim. Instead, you could make a point in a long sentence and then a short sentence. And this is one thing I explicitly put into my talk on the social responsibility of business because of what my coach suggested. So one of the big punchlines, I was talking about one of my main studies on employee satisfaction, and the huge punchline was this. I found that the 100 best companies to work for in America delivered stock returns that beat their peers by 2 to 3% per year over a 28-year period. Because that's a long sentence, and it's a bit of a mouthful. I did need to describe it in that long sentence because that was the research finding. But it might just glaze over some people. And so what Simon suggested is after that line, I would say, simply put, companies that treat their workers better do better. Okay, so if this was so long that people missed the wood for the trees, then this was a way of just repeating the main point. And indeed, the simply put here is a signpost, is that if you dozed off through that past line, then you're now going to refocus and then get that as being the key point of the talk. I'm going to continue with other tools for highlighting. And so this here is the idea of using different changes in pace. And again, this is one thing that you can do in public speaking that you can't do with writing because there's no concept of the space of writing. And so this was, again, something I did in the talk, where I sped up until the main point, and then I slowed down. So let me um, read this one out. Maybe when I do this, I'm going to over-dramatize it, but this is just to hammer home the technique. So I said, perhaps because the market is so short-termist, perhaps because it's so focused on the numbers, perhaps because it incorrectly thinks that employee-friendly companies are tree-huggy, I find that it takes the market four to five years before it fully notices the benefits of employee well-being. So the key point in that really long sentence 
is the market is really slow to recognize the importance of employee well-being. And so that was the point here in terms of the, uh, what I have in italics. And what's interesting about this sentence is the key point of the sentence is neither at the start nor at the end. So I had to work particularly hard to make sure that the audience got the key point because often, yes, they'll listen to the start and they'll listen to the end. And the other interesting thing about hopefully what I just, how I presented this is that I made sure that well, while I sped up here, I really slowed down here, but then I sped up back at the end. Why? Because if I just slowed down here and kept it slow, that would just be overly dramatic. But also it made sure that people hammered home this point rather than this last part, which is not so important. And indeed, there's other examples of this, and I'm not just going to use my own, talk, my, my own um, talks here. I'm going to share a few others. So um, there's a book that I'm sure most of you would have heard of by Dale Carnegie called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's a really good book about a lot of these um, business skills for the 21st century. But a bit of lesser known is his other book, well, one of his other books, called How to Develop Self-Confidence and Influence People by Public Speaking. And so some examples I'm giving now are either directly taken from his book or paraphrased. Here's one example in terms of the uh, middle bullet point. The investors showed such confidence in the idea that it chose to put 10 million pounds into the company. But I just rushed through that, that 10 million pounds. Let's say the investor showed such confidence in the idea that it chose to put 1 million pounds into that company. You see the difference, right? Those two sentences were different. The first one, I said 10 million pounds. The second, I said 1 million pounds. So what's the bigger number? It's clearly 10 million. But in the first sentence, I just rushed through that 10 million pounds that you didn't really take any notice of it. It was just something which didn't seem striking. But in the second way, when I talked about this, and then I slowed down on the one million pounds that highlighted the magnitude of the money, and so there, slowing down, just highlighted something which was going to be the key point. If, even if you, if you didn't slow down, then even though the content of the sentence might have sounded striking, it didn't come across in terms of the delivery because you glossed through it. Another thing he said, another example he gives is this one here. This might seem a little bit exaggerated because he gives many places in which he suggests pausing. And maybe some of you might think it's too much. Different people have different styles, so not everybody might use a lot of dramatic pauses. So this might work for you, it might not. But I'm just going to present this because this is an idea that he suggested. And I thought there is potentially some merit in it. I have lived 86 years. I've watched men climb up to success hundreds of them, and of all the elements that are important to success, the most important is faith. No great thing comes to any man unless he has courage. Okay. One final technique he talks about in terms of highlighting key points is rather than using um, fast and slow, is to change the pitch of your voice. And why am I showing you so many different techniques on just one top category, which is highlighting key points, is you can't always use slow, fast, slow, fast, slow, fast. If you do that over an hour, it might get a bit tiresome. So you, we want to think about other techniques. So here, he suggests, well, if you just to deliver the key points of a sentence in slightly a lower pitch, 
then the audience might pay a bit more attention. So here, I have but one merit, that of never despairing. So there I didn't change the speed, but just changed the pitch. Or the great aim of education is not knowledge, but action. And so something like that, again, that's another tool in your armory. Now I'm going to change tack. And I'm going to talk about uh, another key um, challenge of public speaking, which, as I mentioned earlier, is to engage the audience to make sure that they have your attention, because they might not. They, they could be thinking about other things. And my public, public speaking coach, Simon Bucknell, he was not only the UK, public, um, UK and Ireland public speaking champion, he also came second in the world public speaking championships. And why did he come second and, and not first? He was very close to, to winning. Well, what his own public speaking coach told him is at the end of the final, where it was announced that he came second, they said, well, Simon, write down your speech. You've got the transcript of your speech already. Then ask for the transcript of the speaker who came first. And he did. And then the coach said, count the number of times you've put the word you in your speech, and the number of times you put the word you, sorry, the number of times the winner put the word you in his speech. And what the conclusion was, was that Simon had used the word you far less than the person who won. So the key punchline was, using you is something that just involves the audience and emphasizes why they should be interested. And so when Simon implied that principle to one of my own talks, I, in my script, had this line. Investors have the power to put their money into companies that reflect what they would like to see in the world. Sounds powerful, right? Investors have power. But Simon said, let's do this. As investors, you have the power to put your money into companies that reflect what you would like to see in the world. And that was quite different. And just by putting in these few yous, a powerful sentence might become even more powerful. Again, with these things, you want to do them in moderation. You don't want to litter you throughout the speech because that would be a bit excessive. But again, I'm just talking about small tweaks, which can just make a, a large difference to the amount of attention that the speech gets. Another technique might be to use rhetorical questions. Why is a rhetorical question powerful? It's because the audience might then think about, well, what is the answer to that question? So it gets the audience to think, so you're not just passive. You might be trying to think about what is the answer to the question. So again, in my TEDx talk, The Social Responsibility of Business, that started with, why do businesses exist? To earn profit or to serve a purpose? And so maybe the audience would think about, well, what's important to them? Is it profits or is it purpose? And then they knew why I was going with the talk because the goal of the talk was to answer that question. Another idea might be to use contrasts, and that's to give, keep the audience on, on their toes. Because it might be, you might, you might be giving a, a talk on a topic where the audience might just know where you're going and might zone off. So if I gave a talk about, say, why businesses should reduce their carbon impact, their, their, their carbon footprint, right? Most people might think, well, I sort of know this. We know a lot about carbon footprint. There's a, there's a lot of attention being put on it. And so people might be tempted to zone out. So sometimes just using contrast and using twists might be helpful. So as an example, 
my TED talk, What to Trust in a Post-Truth World, I started with this example of Belle Gibson, who told a story about having cancer, and then you're sympathetic with her, and then suddenly it turns out two minutes into the talk that she was actually making this up. It wasn't true. And so that sort of kept the audience on their toes. Something which seemed obvious, we want to be siding with this person, actually we twisted. Now, you can't, again, keep doing that throughout the talk because, again, it will be rather jarring. But to put a few things in like this, maybe even just one, that might make a talk which seems obvious actually not seem so obvious, and then you're capturing the audience's attention. Related to this, a couple of other points is the idea of a callback. So what is a callback? So some of you might know this as a comedy term. So in comedy, like how do sometimes jokes work? You, you make a joke about something, and then you go to other jokes, and then maybe half an hour in, another joke that you have refers to a joke that you made right at the start. And, and why that, does that cause a lot of laughter? It now becomes a little bit like an inside joke, right? Because only the people who were there at the start of the talk and they got the first joke would fully be able to get the, the later joke. So that set, creates a sense of familiarity. It creates a community feeling with the audience, and that leads to laughter. And laughter is something which is inherently very social. And I think this also works in terms of, of a, a public speech, even if it's not something which is for comedic purposes. Why? It's the same idea of familiarity. So if you say something which relates to something you mentioned earlier, then, well, they've heard that point previously, and it wakes them up, it gives them something which is familiar, it sort of closes the circle. And we like, to, we like things which are familiar. You might know the famous book, uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, where anything which is familiar is much more likely to get your attention than something which is not. And so this goes back to the importance of something like signposts. So let's actually just call back and go back to the example that I had uh, with the signposts. So you start your stock pitch by saying, there's three reasons why you should invest in this stock. Growth prospects, management quality, and market undervaluation. Spend maybe five minutes on growth prospects, 10 on management quality, 15 minutes into the talk where maybe the audience is getting a bit tired. You then say, and finally, market undervaluation. And the audience remembers, oh, yeah, we heard about this right at the start of the talk. That's something familiar. And so that creates a nice link. And so that's something which just has a little bit familiar familiarity. It engages the audience because it's something familiar. Right, these things are only small things. We only need to make small tweaks. But the power of this could be quite large. Let's now go back to uh, where I left off. Um, let me skip this and just go into the, 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 this final one, which to me sounded so obvious I never even thought of, of this idea of being engaged yourself until I read the book by Del, Del Carnegie. So the most important way, I think, actually, to make the audience, audience engaged is to make sure it's on a topic that you're really engaged on yourself. That might seem really obvious, right? Why would you ever give a talk on something you don't care about? But you might feel pressure, to give a talk on something that's hot or something that's important. So I mentioned in my last talk on choosing a career is that we might want to choose a career which is in vogue at the moment, something like fintech. But as I mentioned in that talk, if everybody knows that fintech 
is really hot at the moment. Everybody's going to go for those jobs. And if you don't have particular passion in fintech, you're not going to do better than others. And similarly, why did I choose to give my lecture series, my second year lecture series, on business skills for the 21st century? If I'd given it on fintech, maybe more people would come because they think, well, this is something which is going to be really important for the future. But I have no particular passion on, on fintech. Well, I don't have any particular knowledge. I don't have a tech background. I chose to give it on business skills for the 21st century. Why? Because my recognition that as I've been a professor for 12 years at London Business School and Wharton, there are many things that we should be teaching our students that we are not, like time management, like public speaking, like mental and physical wellness. And so these are topics that I'm particularly passionate about. So some of my students, I mentioned, when they go and get jobs, they need to give a speech. They might have to give a stock pitch to a company, to an investor. So what is the stock that you'll choose? So for somebody, they might choose, let's say, Beyond Meat. Why? Because they're really passionate about climate change, and that's why that's a company they really care about. Now, somebody else might think, well, let's choose the most complicated company because then I can show off my valuation knowledge or my knowledge of this difficult takeover situation. But I think that's probably going to give a much less engaging talk than something that you might care about. It might be beyond meat if you're somebody who cares about climate change or a pharmaceuticals company which is curing a disease that you care about. The important thing is it has to be your talk. It's your story rather than somebody else's. And for me, public speaking, because it was something that I was really struggling with when I was young, this was something which I think is important to me as being part of my story. Okay. Here are a few more points where, again, I learned from the Carnegie book, which is about the importance of being concrete. And again, this is something you can get a little bit more in a, in a public speech than you can in written communication. So let's say I was to tell you about a field that I'd bought or a field that I'd seen. I said the field was 1,000 square meters. You might think, well, that sounds a large number, but you can't really picture 1,000 square meters. If I instead said the field was three times as big as this room, that's something which is much more concrete. That's something that's easier to relate with. All I need to do was to go to Google, look up the size of Western Lecture Theatre, find it was 323 square foot, and that's 323 square metres, and then that just gives something which is more dramatic than just this, this number here. Let me give you another example. When I talk about CEO pay, which I did in my last lecture series, I could say a CEO earned 350 times more than her average colleague. Yeah, that sounds a lot. But what if I was to say this? In a day, the CEO earned as much as the average employee in a year. Again, that comparison is more powerful than the first one here. Yes, sometimes maybe you could do this also in a written article. So some of the things I'm going to be telling you about might not apply purely to public speaking, but here again, given engaging the audience is so much more important, this might be something particularly relevant for a talk. Let's think of it as further examples. So what this suggests is when you, we're giving talks, we want to avoid just giving abstract adjectives. We want to give a concrete example. So Dale Carnegie talks about Martin Luther was stubborn and intractable. If you just stop there, okay, people have got a vague idea what that might mean. 
but a concrete consequence was his teachers flogged him 15 times each morning, right? That is a concrete consequence of that, and it just hammers it home um, more clearly. Or many people earn astonishingly large incomes, okay? Sort of that seems to convey a point. But instead, if we were to say there are lawyers, prize fighters, and songwriters who make more than the President of the United States, Irving Berlin's ragtime music brought him half a million dollars per year. So I've given four points, but what is the general theme I'm trying to draw out from those specific examples is just when we can make things as concrete as possible with specific comparisons, that might make a point come across more vividly. And another way that we can do this is one thing that I haven't really mentioned so far. It's the power of the slides that you're giving if you're giving a presentation with slides. So, so far, my slides have been really pedestrian. They've just been um, basic text. But it might be that you can just hammer home a point more starkly with a picture which tells a thousand words. So in the social responsibility of business, I said, well, if you were to invest 100 pounds in Alliance Trust, an investor in 1888, that would be worth now, in 2015, when I gave the talk, 18 and a half million. You might think 18 and a half million sounds a lot, but maybe for money managers, that's something which is quite routine with compounding. So they said, well, let's just um, show this with, 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 a, with a bar chart and say, actually, this is not to scale. If this were to scale, that green bar would be higher than the roof of the shard. And so something like that, I think, will just make the point even greater than just stating a number. Perhaps the most famous example, well, one of, one of the most famous examples of showing this with pictures, not just words, was this. So some of you might have seen this. It's from the documentary An Inconvenient Truth on climate change with Al Gore. And so what Al Gore says is, well, he tries to show how much the um, CO2 concentration is forecast to go up just in a couple of years. And it's hard to see. I, I'm afraid I had to take a screenshot. But there's a contraption here where he, he stood on this platform and it raised him higher and higher. So he's a, probably about 15 foot tall at the time where he's doing that. Now, you can't do something like that in every single talk. But this is just to show there's a couple of things which uh, try to illustrate this graphically rather than just with text can be powerful. It might not be that. It might be that you're even just taking a stick and pointing to something high. But that was a very memorable part of that uh, documentary for me where he had to be elevated with this platform which grew and grew and grew because the forecast CO2 concentration is so high. Now what I'm going to do is talk about a couple of items of delivery which may seem really obvious, but these are the ones that I most comment on when I am providing the feedback to students who give my, the trade idea. And one of them is in terms of body language. So this point may seem even more obvious than anything else to face the audience, but actually I see a lot of pitches or presentations where they'll be looking at the slides because they will just need to read off them. And even if they look back to the audience, they'll look back over one shoulder, but still with the body turned. So it means that they are looking back to the audience, they're only going to be looking at one side. So for me, it's going to be the left of the audience. So nobody is going to be able to remember the entire talk off by heart. I've had to look at the slides myself from time to time. And so I need to look back and remember what my next point is. 
see what it is. But then I need to turn back to the audience and make sure I'm not just turning my head, but I'm turning my entire body so I'm not just facing the left of the room, I'm also going to be facing the right. So face the audience is one. Another important thing is to face all of the audience. So when I was learning um, public speaking, I was given um, some coaching at the investment bank I was working for, Chase Manhattan, and a lot of the advice I was given was actually not that great advice. So I was told you needed to engage the audience by looking at everybody. And so I see a lot of people give presentations where every point they're giving, they're giving it and looking around to make sure that they're engaging everybody. But this is what I call scanning. So that's the idea of every point you're scanning the entire audience, but that's distracting, and that gives just, I, I think, a weak stance. And similarly with that, people say, well, you don't want to be completely static, so maybe when you're giving a, a talk, you're walking around all the time and just you're looking at the whole audience and moving. But what I tried to do when I gave the example right back at the start of signposting was break down the points and then use your gaze and your stance for particular points. So I gave my first point here, which is about the importance of growth prospects. So I'm addressing one side of the room. Then I might take a few steps, shift my stance, look at the other side of the room, and then give the point about management quality. And why I think that's more powerful is that at every point in time, my stance is strong. I'm not pacing around, I'm not rocking backwards and forwards. When I'm giving this point, I'm not scanning the audience. I'm making the point directly and intentionally at one side of the room. But I'm not ignoring the audience, because it means that when I'm giving the next point, I'm giving back that to this next part of the room. And so that gives a strong stance. It makes sure that you face all the audience, and it also has a nice transition between each point, is that if you're shifting your stance and shifting your gaze, then it makes it clearer where one point stops and the next one starts. And then it's a speech, it's a selection of points, it's not a stream of consciousness. Okay. Let me go back to uh, where I was. Now, I think out of all of the um, challenges in public speaking, one of the most difficult things is how to use your hands. So you have some people who will overly gesticulate, and others who don't use their hands will put them in their pockets. And so when I was um, at Chase Manhattan, why we had this public speaking coach come in is that at the end of the talk, we had sorry, at the end of the internship, we had to give a presentation to the company management, and that would play a major role in us getting a, a full-time job after the internship. And so what the uh, person told us is to cheat, to either put our hands in our pockets or to hold something, such as to hold notes or cards, so that during the entire talk, you're holding on to something. And I thought that was really bad advice, right? Because that would be a short-term Band-Aid. It's true that if you put your hands in your pockets, or if you held a card, then you would not have any problems of over-gesticulating. However, what this would mean is that you'd always be um, a slave to having this stopgap, this, this band-aid, in order to prevent you having to use your hands. So what I'd encourage is, to the extent to which we have ability to practice this, is to try to keep your hands free. So sometimes for me, I'm actually putting the pointer on the, um, on the, on the table just so that I can free up my hands. 
And so most of the time, what you're going to be doing with your hands is that you're probably not going to be doing much with them. So the default position should be maybe around elbow or waist height. So I'm not going to have them completely closed like this. Or others I see like this, or they might have one hand in the pocket. So keep them open. That's good for a general open stance. But sometimes it might be I might want to use the hands to highlight a particular point. So when I gave a lot of the finance talks last year, I might look at, say, the stock price, which started low and then went up high. And then again, that just adds a further accent to the words where I'm describing the increase in the stock price. The couple of things I will say if you use your hands for those purposes is, number one, just recognize that the audience is a mirror of you. So it used to be at the start, when I, before I saw the public speaking coach, I'd go like that, because to me, that's going up from left to right. But the audience is seeing the opposite of that. This might seem an obvious point, but I would have never noticed it had the public speaking coach not told me, you want to go like this. And then when you do choose to use your hands, don't be afraid of that. So I sometimes see people will say, the stop voice went up from low to high, and do that. So at the end of the gesture, they'll bring their hands back down, they're almost embarrassed that they've used their hands. Instead, the luxury of not using them most of the time, of keeping them at waist height, means that if you do choose to use them, then you can use that boldly and not be afraid to hold at the end of a gesture. Okay, I've got a couple more uh, tips left and then um, opening it up to, to questions. Okay. Um, yeah, let me spend a little bit of time on this. Is in terms of answering questions, I'm going to just go through the first and the bottom point just in the interest of time. It's that sometimes, let's say you're giving a stock pitch, um, somebody in the audience will ask a question, and you know what that question is going to be. You are salivating before answering because you've prepared that answer, and you've got a great answer. But let them finish, because how the dynamics often work is sometimes it might be a junior person asking the question, often their chance to show their knowledge to their colleagues or their seniors is through asking the question. So do make sure that they've completely finished answering it before you respond. And actually, if you pause before responding, then that's something which just gives you time to collect your thoughts before answering. And then when you answer the question, let's say the person who asks the question is, is Claire who's sitting in the front row. Sometimes it might be that I just give the answer to her. But the problem with this is that everybody else in the room then suddenly thinks, well, that wasn't my question. I don't really care about the answer. And then it's just a bilateral conversation between Claire and me. I might start by answering her, the question towards her, but then I would try to face all of the room so that even if you didn't answer the question, you might still be engaged in a response. Because one of the main things I see in a Q&A is a lot of the audience zoning out because they think, oh, I didn't ask that question. That's not something for me. Okay, so I often get questions on overcoming nerves, so let me just spend a couple of minutes on, on this. And I would just highlight the second point here, which is to never underestimate the power of a pause. So sometimes if people are nervous, that will cause them to speak very, very quickly and they want to get through it. But pausing can be really powerful, number one. It can be powerful in terms of delineating the point. It's clear when one point stops and then that one starts. But also, if you have pauses in the talk, that just gives you time to reset. And it just shows some confidence if, indeed, you're willing to have some silence 
it might be I'm going to end my point here, say nothing while I walk across the rest of the room, and then when I've moved to the other side of the room, I resume. That's just a way of slowing things down, keeping things under control, and overcoming nerves. Now, before I open up to, to Q&A, I'll just talk about how to get practice with public speaking. Because, okay, you've heard this, this talk, hopefully some of the points will be useful, but how can you actually implement them? So I'll give a little plug for, for Toastmasters. So if you haven't heard of this, this is an international organisation to promote public speaking. There are many chapters here within London where you can sign up and, and, and go to this. And there's talks of two type, uh, types. There are, you can sign up to give a prepared speech. And those prepared speeches can be on different subjects, one on vocal variety, one on entertaining, one on speaking with um, sincerity and so on. And you can give particular tracks. So it could be that you do a specific module on entertaining speeches or speeches by senior management and so on. And what Toastmasters also has is impromptu speeches, like when I was put on the spot and asked about the difference between a lady and a woman. And that's good because a lot of speaking we might do won't be prepared. But if there's one final point that I want you to leave with before I go to the Q&A, it is this one here. Is you don't need to give a speech to practice public speaking. You don't need to give a formal speech to, give, to practice public speaking. And that's important because many junior people won't be the person giving the pitch to the client in a meeting. So what can you do in those cases? So there might be times where you could just present your work to your boss. In my last lecture on finding purpose in your career, I talked about the time where I was asked to deliver some pitch books to this managing director at the airport. But rather than just giving the books to him, I said, Frank, can I have five minutes of your time? Can I go through the main points of the talk? And so there, I have the challenge of, number one, engaging him. He probably wanted to go into his first-class lounge and not listen to me, but I need to be engaging. I need to be concise, and I need to practice a lot of the key things in terms of public speaking. Or it might be that at a conference, right, you're in the audience, and you ask a question. Now, the very first times I went to an academic conference and I asked a question, my heart would pump and pump and pump when, that, when I was about to ask it because I thought I would make a mistake. I would have to script the, the question down sometimes on a piece of paper and read the question from that piece of paper in case I stumble that question. But then the more and more times I did this, then I realized I was able to ask questions without necessarily having to write them down beforehand, and then the nerves would go, and then that was one way in which I got some practice. And it might be even outside work, there might be chances of doing this, like I learned speaking first in student government, it might be coaching a sports team, and so on, um, but though just to keep our eyes open for other opportunities, not just formal speeches, any form of communication, even something like writing, right? To write, um, that's a way of, of trying to make sure that you're having something in, engaging, those different forms, all of those, I think, part of a homogenous whole and will help develop a skill in, in this field. Well, thank you very much for, for, for everyone's attention. Uh, and I'm, as always, I'm very happy to take questions. And they could be on some things I've mentioned, but if there were other things that you hoped that I would have spoken about but didn't get a chance to, um, please do, do ask. And uh, when you ask the question, just um, try to make sure that you get the mic microphone before doing so. Thank you very much. <clears throat>